The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Okay, well, welcome everybody to the Video Insiders. Hello, Mark. Hey, Dror. It's awesome to be on the microphone with you. Yeah, likewise. So we're here in another episode of uh, the Video Insiders. And uh, today we're going to talk about how do you produce HDR content, high dynamic range. And uh, we just love HDR, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the great thing about HDR is... You do not have to be any sort of kind of video file or golden eyes. HDR just looks awesome. And you can show it to anybody and they're going to say, wow, that looks great. <laughs> that looks better. <laughs> it's yeah. so easy to see, you know, the the impact. And you don't have to be close to the screen, like have your nose right, right uh, next to the glass in order to see the difference because... Uh, we uh, spend you, enough time with our noses to the to, to the screen. <laughs> and examining video quality, yeah. But HDR is really something that uh, that stands out. And once you have it, you don't want to go back. You want to see those vivid colors popping up out of your uh, TV screen and all the content that you're watching. So, so it's a very important um, feature. And uh, today we're going to talk with one of the experts on uh, HDR production. We have with us today, Sam Bilodeau from Mystery Box. Hi, Sam. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. It's a good yeah, day. Welcome to the Video Insiders, Sam. Thank you. All right. So Mystery Box, we a lot of our, our listeners have probably seen us at NAB or IBC or, you know, seen various presentations. And we often get these comments. Wow, your video looks awesome. Now, we hope that they're referring, uh, obviously, and most of the time they're talking about the encoding and, yeah, uh, and the but, quality. But, but, yeah, that's but right. Most of but the time they're actually talking about the content. <laughs> they're talking about the content itself. Yeah. Exactly. And most of the time they're seeing mystery box content because we've been licensing mm -hmm. for, um, well, let's see. I, I think, let me think it's about a couple this. of years. Second, yeah. Second year, we kind of partial year in there. So I don't know, you know, two and a half, maybe almost three years we've been using yeah. your content and, uh, yeah, it's, it's really awesome. So, uh, keep making uh, great content. Yeah. So when you <laughs> see those 4k P60 HDR clips from Peru or Costa Rica or 8k drawer or 8k, right. In That's the last right. ABC, we showed their 8k content and uh, right. we demonstrated encoding it at 60 frames per second, fully in software. But forget the encoding. The content was just great. You know, we showed it on That's an 8K awesome. TV, HDR, of course. Um, it was awesome. So uh, we know that you, you produce a lot of content and a lot of the demos that we see are based on that content. And Mark, when you said earlier that people, when they say the video looks great, you know, are referring to the quality of the video and not the content, there is a, an interrelation here because in order to get great video quality when you encode the video, you need to have great source content, great source quality. Absolutely. And and with with Mystery Box, we we got excellent sources, you know, really pristine video. And then uh, using our encoding, we can really get, uh, show 
a great uh, quality on the screens. So I, I'd like to start with, uh, with HDR, actually. Everybody's talking about HDR. Not everybody knows exactly what is HDR. And there's also HDR for photos and HDR for video, which is pretty uh, kind of a completely different thing. So maybe you can walk our audience uh, through the uh, definition and, and the principles of, of HDR. Yeah, that's, that's a really good place to start. It's been what I've been you know, teaching and hopefully helping people understand for the better part of the last five years. So the biggest difference between HDR and traditional video is that HDR allows us to deliver more brightness and more colors to the end user, the end viewer of the content. So we're not doing what the typical HDR methods for photos has been, where we'll go out and we'll bracket exposure and capture a very high dynamic range image and then squeeze it into this tiny little box of of delivery content. Now, what we're going to go do is we're going to go and capture that wide dynamic range, and then we're going to color correct it and encode it in a way that when we deliver it to your television, you're getting all of that dynamic range. We're not clipping it. We're not squishing it. We're not tone mapping it at all. You get everything on your screen that we want you to see. Right. You know, it might be helpful because not, you know, maybe all of us are familiar with even some of the terminology like stops. Mm -hmm. So maybe give just a, you know, a very quick uh, beginner's guide to even what you're referencing when you're talking about using the terminology stops. So dynamic range is all about stops. The standard dynamic range for 8-bit digital content has only been around five and a half to six stops of dynamic range, which means that Every, every stop of dynamic range is a doubling of light brightness. So that means that you have a, a very limited range. The eye at a glance can see around 10 stops of dynamic range, right? So what we've been delivering has been well below what the eye can see, what, are, what we can feel in traditional video delivery. With high dynamic range, the the PQ or SC2084 spec can deliver upwards of 26 stops of dynamic range. And our, mo our mastering displays today can display around 17, 18 stops of dynamic range. So as a content creator, we're getting three times the amount of dynamic range, which gives us brighter brights and darker darks, right? So we have more stops that we can deliver to the end viewer. Interesting. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. You mentioned the referencing, uh, I mean, the reference displays up to, mm -hmm. um, you know, more than 20 stops. What is the best consumer display capable of, you know, a TV, like let, let's say an OLED? So yeah, OLEDs are usually capable of around anywhere between, okay. So the OLED manufacturers are going to claim that they have infinite stops and that's because <laughs> yeah. they can turn off the pixels at the end, right? <laughs> so they, the, they drop, drop, drop in brightness until eventually they turn off. Now I don't consider that to be infinity, but uh, it does give you really great color saturation when they do that. But generally, they run between 0 0.005 nits at the low end, which is your, your darkest dark that you can actually be on at. And around, uh, for the best consumer TVs on the market right now, it's around 800 nits on their peak. Um, we're seeing more in desktop displays. So the new Asus displays, the Apple XDR uh, Pro XDR display, those are peaking at 800, 1600, 3,000 
and above brightness nits, right? So we're getting more in the desktop because it's easier to make a, a display smaller that's brighter. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so from the from the consumer television point of view, you're about you're about 800 nits peak, and that's with the current generation of OLEDs. And then for the for other TVs, you're around 600, four to 600 nits peak. And then the highest end desktop displays are around 1600 right now. Wow. And I think also mobile devices, the new iPhone uh, mm-hmm. 11 Pro, I think is also 800 nits, right? Yes, yes. They're using an OLED in that screen and it is a fantastic screen. Apple's X series, the 10 and then the 11, they've been, they have added high dynamic range support to it uh, because they're going into the brightness range. But even the, their laptops, the new versions of Mac OS will interpret HDR correctly. And if you have a 600 nits OLED or an LCD on your laptop screen, you'll get HDR displayed as HDR on your screen. So HDR is, is being supported by everything and it's, it's, it's everywhere. This is interesting. Yeah. What's really interesting about what you just said, Sam, is Apple's commitment to extending HDR all the way through their device ecosystem. And it seems like, and even your comment that on their new desktop display, that actually it's, it's even capable, you know, of, of greater contrast and, you know, higher nits up to 1600 than, than mm-hmm. the best TVs. And, and yep. that wasn't true even a couple of years ago, still the TV technologies were kind of where you'd traditionally really get where you could anyway, if you chose to buy, you know, the right display, et cetera, and get the very best quality. And yet it's fascinating to me that now potentially even down into an iPhone, you could now, you know, forget the fact the screen's smaller, but the fact is you could, in theory, make a very good argument that you have a better display on your iPhone than you do on that gorgeous big 75-inch TV hanging <laughs> on the wall. That's I amazing mean, yeah, could, to me. We, we could we could make that argument, but I don't think this is the uh, the discussion you want to have today. I well, have a lot of opinions on that subject. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm actually, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe we can chat about it because, you know, one of the things that's happening in video in terms of video streaming is, and we've really been leading the kind of leading, carrying the, the flag here on this is, is to stop this practice that there's like mobile profiles and, and then there's like the TV right. and to treat, you know, now as bandwidth is increasing, you know, with 5g, which is still, you know, rolling out and, you know, I understand it's not fully there, but, but we're getting very quickly into a place where, where video distributors should not be treating like phones as the second screen. You know, like like no, only no, sending definitely... 720p profiles. And yet even today, it's shocking how many services like they literally are forcing 720p on the phone. And you talk to somebody about their recipes and a lot of times you literally get it. Well, it's a phone. What do you like? Come on. I mean, come on. It's a phone. You know, like, what do you expect? And it's like, yeah, but that customer might have a better display capability on, the on their phone. phone. Yeah. Than they yeah. do on their TV. And they, so. and they might watch more video on their phone. Yeah. You know? Yes, yes, especially in the the rising generation. Absolutely. um, yeah, the video on the phone is their primary method That's of right. consuming consuming content. I mean, I think about the video that I consume. Like, yeah, I sit down and I I turn on our TV, but for the most part, I'm I'm doing something and I have my phone on on my desk streaming something. Yeah, right. <laughs> while I'm doing something else, right. Just yeah. 
it, it's there. That's the screen that I watch. I on. find myself. That's yeah. so funny. You say that it, just in the last couple days, I found myself on more than one occasion doing exactly what you just said, where I've got, I'm at my desk. I've got, you know, my beautiful big, you know, I, I, I have a big 50 inch uh, 4k, you know, that I use for my computer monitor and, and it's all tuned and dialed in. So it looks great. But yet, what did I have? I had my phone playing some video interview or, you know, something right there. Mm-hmm. And, and it just struck me like, wow, yeah, it's that that behavior is becoming a lot more common. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, the one catch with that is that you do need a slightly brighter screen on a smaller screen mm. in order to capture the same amount of attention. And there's some uh, biomechanical reasons for that. A TV at 600 nits is outputting so much more light just in mm. general. Than, because, uh, of the area. Area because of the surface yeah, area, right? Because nits is uh, brightness per surface area. Mm. And so like, yes, if you're in a dark environment and your phone is fairly close and fills most of your field of view, you're going to get a fairly on par experience. But with a television, you actually feel the brightness a little bit more because there's actually more light being produced, bathing your skin, bathing your eyes, right? And so while your image might look the same, you have a slightly different biomechanical reaction to the image. But that's uh, that's just a little bit of a quibble that I have. Okay. And uh, you know, we talk a lot about the, the, the brightness and with HDR being able to see those bright elements without them mm-hmm. uh, being saturated or, or burning. But, but there's also the dark. And uh, we had a whole episode where we discussed uh, uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> Game of Thrones. And the issue mm-hmm. that, that very dark episode. So HDR is supposed to help you in the dark as well, right? In the shadows. Yeah. What HDR does is it gives you a better allocation of your bits so that you can allocate more bits to the brights and get a, bar, a brighter dynamic range, but you can also add more bits to the dark and get more detail throughout your darks. So you're going to store a lot more dynamic range below your midtone exposure, and that's going to give you the ability to really play down, as a content creator, play down into those darks and retain the, a gradient and a finesse of detail well below what a normal SDR television is going to be able to do, which again, allows you to craft your image in a way that your audience responds to the fact that the image is dark, right? Because we respond to a bright image differently than we respond to a dark image, Mm. Right. So if you walk, if you think about walking down into a dark basement, right, there's this feeling shift from being, say, outside in daylight down into your basement. Now, in SDR, if you're shooting a dark basement scene, you have the same six stops of dynamic range Mm. as if Mm -hmm. you shot a bright outdoor scene. Right. But with HDR, you can shoot that and translate it into a darker brightness range for your end viewer so that when your character or your scene shifts into these darker environments you can present that as darker and they're going to your your audience is going to respond their pupils are going to dilate there's going to be some shifts in their brain that understand the feeling of darkness and the feeling of that oppression and you're not going to lose any detail within your image when you're doing that because you still have all of that dynamic range to play around with and to craft that perfect image in the darks. 
Interesting. And, and and of course, it also allows, you know, as you said, the bright colors, we respond differently. So it mm-hmm. allows them to really be sort of accentuated or to pop without just kind of that bloom or, or you know, almost just that super artificial look, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Where, you know, kind of in SDR, you crank up the collar and yeah, sure, you get all the saturation, but it's, it's just kind of- Doesn't it, look natural. It doesn't all. look natural. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. A way, that, a way that I've started thinking about it and explaining it to people is that your stops of dynamic range affect your color saturation. Mm. With mm. SDR, you had not just six stops of brightness, but you only had available to you six stops of saturation, mm. which means that if you wanted to have a fine detail or a gradient or something very saturated, you're still playing within this very, very small box of saturation. But with HDR, those the, the larger dynamic range of brightnesses that you have available give you a much broader range of saturations available. And that's just because you can create more contrast between colors, right? Between your RGB channels. And the bigger that contrast, the better the saturation. So you can have very highly saturated colors without clipping, without losing any of the detail, without having to palletize them or having any form of color bloom. You just end up with these very, very super saturated photorealistic, real-world realistic, or hyper-realistic colors that you can present because of the additional dynamic range that HDR is giving you. You know, it's interesting. Dora, I think you were actually with me. Do you remember 2014 when we saw at HPA the uh, Dolby Vision demo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with the Dolby reference display. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and and I can't actually recall if it was at that event or if it was somewhere else, but I think I think it was there. They were showing, or maybe they were just talking about, but Taxi Driver, you know, the very famous movie with Robert De Niro, apparently had always suffered from the color of the taxi was never really correct. Now, yellow and exactly. <laughs> now, you know, we're getting into really kind of video file kind of stuff here, you know, because at the end of the day, I think still um, nobody um, said, oh, that, you know, I can't believe that movie, the color of the taxi is wrong. But for those of us who follow this kind of stuff, and, you know, of course, HPA is uh, cinematographers, and, you know, it's um, very, very serious uh, imaging experts. But I can recall that one of the things, and, and, I, and I think Dolby was showing a clip Again, maybe it was just described, so I might might not be remembering correctly, but I do recall that this exact discussion, you know, what you just said, Sam, was one of the, you know, sort of like the um, use cases or explanations for like, well, wh- why do we need this? Yeah, it's a selling exactly. Feature. It's like, well, well, why do we yeah. need this? It's like, well, because actually, the reason why that that yellow on the taxi was never it wasn't correct is because you know they didn't have the ability to represent it digitally. So, Yeah, and, and yellow is a really good color to talk about because while with your pure primaries, you might get up to six stops of saturation, yellow is a secondary, mm-hmm. right? It's full negative blue, which means that you have to have full red and full green in order to create yellow. Mm. And you end up with a less of an ability of creating that saturation for colors like yellow or magenta or uh, cyan than you would closer to your pure primaries, right? Mm -hmm. With HDR, that restriction is gone because 
everything like yes you might lose one or two stops on your secondaries or your intermediate colors but you have such a higher dynamic range that they can be way more saturated yeah. than they ever could be without yeah. it wow wow so yeah so we're getting into those um, specific colors that can uh, can benefit from from hdr and uh, i want to talk a bit uh Go back a bit to the technical side. Okay. Uh, we, we hear a lot about uh, SDR Rec 709 and mm -hmm. uh, HDR Rec 2020. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a bit the difference between these um, color spaces? Yeah. So we have two big things that are going on with any anytime we try to map digital data into light output. We have the color space that's being used, meaning the color primaries, RGB, where do they land in our absolute reference gamuts, as well as what their white point is. That's the color space. And when we hear something like Rec. 709 or Rec. 2020, we're usually talking about the color space. The second mm -hmm. part of that is the transfer function. The transfer function is the mapping of, okay, now we have where those RG and Bs land in this, in this uh, absolute reference gamut, but what, how do they translate into brightnesses? And that's what the transfer function tells us to do. So when we hear SDR and HDR, what you're hearing is transfer function. Okay, mm -hmm. what you're hearing is the mapping from digital values into brightnesses. So with Rec. 709, you have a small color gamut. Okay, it's the one we've been using for HD. The primaries are relatively close together. With Rec. 2020 color gamut, they expanded the color gamut. It's a wide color gamut so that the red value, the green value, and the blue value are actually what are called pure wavelength primaries, which means they're mapped to a wavelength of light as if it was laser light, okay? Giving it a much, much broader range of color tones and saturations that that gamut can reproduce, even in standard dynamic range. Then when you add HDR, we're talking about two new transfer functions. So Rec. 709 is, or in the SDR, uses the traditional gamma system for mm -hmm. delivering brightness. And that's, you know, gamma 2.2 or 2.4 and all that headache of what do I grade in? What do I deliver in? What can I assume my mm -hmm. customers watching their TV in? You know, how bright is it? How dark is it? Is it going to match my reference display? That's all SDR world. With HDR... Yeah. And, and, and we, in SDR with a gamma, it's, it's a very simple function for mm -hmm. translating... Very between, easy. ...between the optics and the electrical signal and, mm -hmm. and, and back... Yeah, it, it is a pretty easy function. It was, it's very much related to uh, power functions and the way that the old cathode ray tubes worked, right? Because they implemented these nonlinear signals just by nature of the way that the CRTs worked. And so with uh, CCD cameras and then LCD screens, we've always been trying to emulate the cathode ray tube and how it responded mm -hmm. to voltages. And so it's a really archaic format and it was never designed. It just happened to be the format, mm. right? It happened to be the way things are. The new HDR transfer functions are designed formats. Color scientists, some very smart people sat down and said, okay, if we're going to create something new and we're going to present more dynamic range to the end viewer, how are we going to do that? And so then there ended up being two schools of thought and two separate transfer functions and we call both HDR. The first one is Dolby's solution. And what they did is they mapped the dynamic range of the human vision and then created an equation that they bet that best fit 
that dynamic range and our sensitivity to gradients at different levels. And they called that perceptual quantization or PQ. Mm-hmm. The BBC said, okay, if we're going to move into higher dynamic ranges, we're going to need something that is backwards compatible. So with NHK, they co-developed a hybrid system where up until 50%, so you know whatever digital code that lands on, it's going to be a gamma curve. Okay, it's going to match the gamma curve. And so that way, on older televisions, that part is all still going to look right. And then above that, they switch from a gamma curve to a log function. And so they're able to roll off a lot more dynamic range above the mid-tone exposure. And what that allows them to do is on an SDR TV, the highlights are kind of nicely rolled Mm. off, but on an HDR TV, they're expanded out to recover that dynamic range. And their solution is called hybrid log gamma or HLG. So those HLG the ch- is then backward compatible with SDR with, TVs that with can SDR. display HDR content correctly. Yes. And I always say it's backwards compatible with an asterisk. It's backwards mm-hmm. compatible because the way that HLG works is if I am grading on, let's say, my Sony BVMX with 18 and a half stops of dynamic range, I have to use all of those in HDR, otherwise it's going to look very flat in mm-hmm. SDR because those 18 stops that I'm using are going to be presented as six stops. And mm-hmm. it can leave the image looking really flat and washed out in SDR. But generally, especially for like live stuff, it is a very, very useful transfer function. You put that on a newscaster, you put that on a sports event, like you're shooting the pitch. And so your SDR viewers are going to get a nice little roll off with the same exposure as everybody else. But your HDR viewers are going to be able to see the uh, more of the dynamic range of the of the pitch of the venue of the event or whatever it is that you're doing because of the HLG curve. And so you're able to simulcast these live broadcasts without any other process. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. they'd have to have parallel encoding paths. You know, if they had a dedicated, for example, Dolby Vision feed for HDR or SDR, they literally would have to have two two separate production paths, right? If they didn't use HLG. Yeah, and that's not necessarily a problem, right? Because there is, with a lot of the web streaming stuffs and the encoding, the data rates that we have available to us, like even with terrestrial broadcasts, there's substreams. I mean, most channels are already broadcasting with HD, SD, 4K substreams. And so you can say things like, okay, our our 4K is going to be at HDR because we can assume that most of our 4K customers are going to be getting HDR and then we have an SDR conversion for the for, 1080 for the 1080p yeah. for instance interesting yeah right so there so there's other options available and it's just a matter of choice for how much complexity you want to have in the system my feeling is that eventually pq is going to replace everything because like rec 2020 it's designed to match what the human mm-hmm. eye can actually see and for content creators pq has the advantage that it is an absolutely referenced transfer function, which means that the digital codes always match a specific light output, always. And that's really important because we've suffered for years from people having miscalibrated televisions, our content looking different on different screens, right? That someone's cranked the contrast up, someone's cranked it down, someone has their saturation Mm -hmm. boost way up, and all the colors are blown out. They've switched it to warm, to cool, to whatever the different settings are. And then the TV itself is also adapting the dynamic range as it lays out the gamma curve. With the PQ curve, I can trust 
that my authorial intent, the look that I've created is much, much, much more closely going to be matched on that television, right? Regardless of whether or not you have a have a brand new OLED or an older HDR TV that might be using zone array backlighting, both are going to reproduce as ver- as close as possible to what I'm actually aiming So for. how does all this translate to you in the field with a camera producing content? You know, like, do you need to think about what the end distribution technologies are going to be, i.e., hey, I know for whatever reason, and maybe sometimes you know, maybe often you don't know, but hey, I know this is going to go to HLG, or I know this is going to go to PQ, Dolby Vision, or HDR10, or help us understand that, you know, what you have to think about as, as a cinematographer when you're out in the field. That is a really, really great question. Mark, you said earlier that it's really easy to see the difference between HDR and SDR. And that's really true. But for the majority of the HDR that's on the market, there hasn't been much consideration about, I'm going to go out and actually shoot for HDR. To be completely Mm -hmm. frank, because a lot of cinematographers are wary of HDR. They've been using show LUTs, they've been using tools, they've been using techniques for, in some cases, decades. And now we're saying, okay, now, but everything has to be different, right? You have to think about everything different. And so there's a lot of lag within the industry. Now, so what I tell people is that if you are shooting on a professional cinema grade camera, you're out in the field and you're exposing properly and you're creating a very, very cleanly captured image, you're going to be HDR ready. Okay. Someone in a post suite somewhere else can convert your content into HDR, take your look that you've created for the cinema or created for television and turn it into HDR and get a very good quality delivery. But if you as a producer go out into the field intentionally thinking, okay, how am I going to use HDR Okay, how am I going to use HDR and showcase, create the mood and create the feeling that I want my viewers mm. to have? You can create a better HDR image. And so there's a couple of, of really good pieces uh, that have come out where the cinematographers have done that. So if you watch the Blade Runner, what was the new one? Yeah. Blade Runner something, something, something. The the most recent one, I'm drawing a blank on its title. Uh, someone can voice over that later. If you watch that, uh, if you watch that, Roger Deakins planned his HDR, right? He went out and he said, I'm going to go and look and see what HDR can do and embrace it as a medium. And so the best image of that film is the HDR version. It's not the cinema version. It's not the, the, the DVD or the Blu-ray version, unless you're getting the ultra HD mm-hmm. Dolby vision HDR version of that film, because he actually went out and intended it to be that way. Okay. And that's what we found at mystery box too, is when we go out specifically planning on working in HDR and knowing that HDR is going to be our delivery format and that we're going to get the best possible image. It allows us to really plan out how we want to bring the viewer and our end consumer of the content how they're going to move through the feeling of the piece. When we do more narrative work, mm. this is what we're talking about, right? When we we want to bring an experience of, okay, what scenes are going to be brighter? What's going to be darker? How are we going to expose for that? How are we going to capture that, right? And so there is that additional planning that you can do to make your HDR better, but you don't have to do it. You can still get really great HDR content 
from stuff that's been shot decades old. I was I graded a piece recently that used content from six years ago, right? Intercut with modern 8K cameras. So your thought is like, well, I mean, that was definitely not shot for HDR. That wasn't a thing, right? But I was still able to get a very, very good HDR image out of that. Not a flawless HDR, but a very, very good HDR image that matched the rest of the content, that matched the feel of the piece, and really, really showcased and sold the world to to the viewer in the way that we were intending. Yeah. By the way, it's Blade Runner 2049. So even if you didn't capture H- Yeah, Blade Runner 2049. So there we go. <laughs> 2049. There we go. So w- what you were saying, Sam, that even if you didn't capture the content in HDR originally, you can take high quality source content and, uh, and grade it uh, to HDR in post-production? Yep, that's exactly what I'm saying. So some of the first stuff that I worked on was NASA footage of shuttle rocket launches shot back in the like 2008, right? And this is shot on a Red One camera, you know, one of the first 4K cameras that was available and shot in Red in Red Raw, right? And so it was a very high quality starting image. But then I was able to do a whole lot of HDR work on it, right? And able to capture the look and feel of being there as if you were in HDR. With HDR, speaking of capture, you have the sensor, which is obviously super critical because mm-hmm. that's what's actually converting the light photons you know, to electrical and then ultimately to bits, right? So, but when you're yep. thinking about a camera, you have the lenses and, you know, and I'm, you're an expert. So I would love for us to maybe if you could share, you know, with the audience, what are the most critical elements? Because I think this is something, you know, for the, those of us who are focused on the encoding part, we just sort of get what we get, right? <laughs> we get the file and then it's like, okay, preserve it. Yeah. But it is interesting and even maybe um, helpful to understand how these various elements like the lens interacts with the sensor and some of the other components that maybe contributes to a better image or a or a lesser quality image. Yeah, so uh, that's a really really good question, and you used a couple of terms that okay. I want to push back on. You used the term better <laughs> or quality. Push back. <laughs> I'm going to push back on that. No, because, you can't, Sam, because we, we live right. on better quality. <laughs> right, right. The whole premise Which, behind our company. So. I know. When it comes to encoding, there is a better and there is a quality. Right? Okay. You're, encoding, really- you're encoding better quality is going to be how closely am I capturing the the original intent, the original image, and translating it into to what I'm sending as a bit string, right? right? And so lower bits for the same level of of detail loss, right? Or same bits with less detail loss. We would call that a better quality. With cameras and lenses, there are different characteristics, okay? Which is how the lenses and the sensors shape and capture the light. And to say one is a higher quality than another is a little bit wrong because you might choose to use a specific lens because of its characteristics, because That's it's right. a little bit soft, because it's a little bit, it, you know, does something that shifts the magentas or 
it's a paintbrush, right? That's kind of what I hear you saying. You know, it's a, yeah, I commented a few times in other podcasts, my background, um, you know, I actually went to music school and, you know, I've, I've spent some time in recording studios mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And so I can relate that very much to like microphones where, you know, and certain types exactly. of signal processing, exactly preamplifiers right. and various things, it would shape the sound. And literally it's the exact same thing as what you're talking about. It's, oh, we want a warm sound or we want a more, mm-hmm. you know, there's a characteristic. So it's a paintbrush. That's interesting. Yeah. So it, it is a paintbrush, right? And so your picking of a camera system or your lenses, I mean, frankly, might be determined by the studio that you're working sure. for, right? But if it's not, what you have is is a familiarity with the camera systems, with the color systems, and with the, the lens characteristics that you're using, right? So we have very ultra-sharp color-neutral lenses that we use whenever we're going out on location, capturing something mm-hmm. like Peru or Costa Rica, where we want to capture as natural as possible. But when we're shooting uh, more creative content, we're, we pick our lenses based on how we want the feel of the image to be, where we want softness, how we want the the look and the shape of the lens. When it comes to the camera, though, there are some things that you can do to help HDR, of course. And the first one is make sure that you're using a high bit depth sensor so that you're, you're translating from the voltages generated at the image sensor to digital value. You're you're recording a much more detailed gradient. So 12-bit, 14-bit, 16-bit, or more is better in that Mm -hmm. conversion because you're capturing more detail. You're capturing more. That usually translates into more dynamic range as well, right? So that makes a big difference in how you how you translate that. And then are you using a camera log function or are you just translating all of that extra detail back into SDR, right? How you store it makes a big difference, right? So capture in a camera log, capture in a camera raw, that's going to give you a better starting place for HDR. But that's not to say that the SDR images you get out can't be converted or shaped later, a lot of a lot of pro cameras are going to have highlight roll-offs and actually store a lot of highlight detail in their SDR image that I can extract when I when I sit down in color correction and pull out those highlights and recreate the extra three to five stops that have been rolled off into the highlights in these SDR images. So again, it's all about look and feel when you're picking those things balanced with the technical quality of the camera and the technical quality of the signal when you're done. So uh, you mentioned encoding earlier, and that is... uh... Mm -hmm. The next step after you have this great raw image, high bit depth, and uh, and now eventually you will need to store it or send it to somebody or, or stream it. What are the particular considerations you make when you compress the video, when you encode the video, when you are dealing with HDR content? So when I'm dealing with HDR content, the first and foremost thing that is at my at, at the front of my mind is bit depth. HDR does not work at 8-bit storage levels, which means mm-hmm. your typical AVCs or any MPEG-2 compression generally, you can't use those, right? You can't use them for storing. You can't use it for delivering. You can't use it as any intermediate formats. So, so you 10, need- 10 bit is the minimum. 10-bit is the minimum. So I'll use something like a ProRes or a DNX, which is a lightly based uh, DC or light DCT-based compression format, right? Interframe only, 
uh, sorry, intra-frame intra -frame only. only. Right. And right. those so are the frames only. just for members of our audience who are not uh, familiar, those are the frames that are encoded individually like yes. separate images and do not depend on other frames. They're not predicted from other frames. Yes. There's no motion information. Each frame stands uh, for itself like, like a JPEG image or a camera image. Yeah, and the, those are all struck to get strung together in one file, and that gives you really great random access, right? right? And if there's a problem or a glitch on one frame, it doesn't translate to an entire group of of images, right? Especially right. if you're using an intermediate format. So if I'm going to be grading, I would always prefer higher, so a 12-bit format. When I'm doing 8K exhibition work in HDR, I actually render out 16-bit TIFF sequences of our 4K or 8K sequences, right? because I want to translate as I'm moving from a program to a program to do a different task. I want to translate as much of the detail or preserve as much of the detail as I can when I'm moving from one to the other. So when it comes to codecs, that's what I'm always thinking about is how much is this codec going to get rid of detail within my image? How much is it going to kill my ability of making a change later on? And is it capturing everything that I want for translating to the end user, right? Because at the end of it all, I'm going to then sit down with my final master sequence and I'm going to compress it into usually HEVC for HDR mm -hmm. delivery. Occasionally, I've actually done it in AVC and it's possible with the new profiles to do AVC HDR, but it's not widely supported. Right. But generally, I'm sitting down to do a 10-bit HEVC delivery in either PQ or HLG. So, so that's the final format that you're going to yeah. use for uh, for delivery, and at, at that point, I guess it's uh, no more uh, 16 bit. Uh, I don't think even 12 bit is supported. So basically, it's 10 bit uh, content when you go into HEVC for distribution. Yeah, um, I mean HEVC, the technical standard supports 12 bit, but in practical terms, your televisions are not right. So if yeah. I'm delivering something for TV, it's going to be a 10 bit HEVC that I'm going to use at a bit rate that I choose that matches what I need for the content. Yeah, but sometimes uh, you need to match a bit rate that is dictated by uh, a storage amount on a mobile device or by a network bandwidth when you are uh, transmitting that signal. We yeah, wish yeah. That we could always um, use the, 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 the number of bits that the content needs, but sometimes, you know, you're trying to to take uh, you know like a a fat file into a thin pipe. Uh. Yeah, I mean, television broadcast has a cap for 4K of around 20 megabits per second if you're doing over the air or generally cable, right? I mean, that's what a channel means, right? Mm -hmm. It's how much bandwidth is available. That's right. usually about 20 megabits, and so you have to crunch down your video and right. your audio below that. Right. Yeah. And so that gets rid of a lot of detail, especially if you're using high frame rate content like we do. We tend to work more with uh, television manufacturers directly and they're not broadcasting stuff. We have a little bit more leeway with mm -hmm. the uh, bit rates that we can use. But yeah, the consideration of are you doing a, a HTTP live stream where you're going to have multiple formats available, you're going to be doing a whole bunch of, of slices that'll match the different bandwidths or match the different resolutions that you're going to connect to for a stream. Are you doing something that is, you know, a one and done for like a Blu-ray? All of those are going to have different considerations for bit rate but your bit depth has to stay the same. And so that generally has a negative impact on your bit rate. You need a higher bit rate to encode a 10-bit content than you do 8-bit content, 
right? And so you you trade off a little bit of spatial quality, and it's usually in some minor details with the accuracy of colors, but you trade that off when you're moving into the encoding step. And it's something that so that it's just part of the process, and most consumers will never actually know sure. or see because they've never seen anything different. Right. No, <laughs> except except if they saw a demo at the store, and, and this is the problem. You yeah. see this demo mm-hmm. at the store, you see the mystery box content at 100 megabits HEVC playing from a, a hard drive, and you know you have 4K uh, 60 frames per second, mm-hmm. great color, everything looks awesome. And then you take the TV home, and you stream a movie, it's HDR, but it's movie, so it's 24 frames per second, and it's yep. like 15 megabits per second yep. for video and audio and, and everything. And you don't get quite the same experience as you Sorry. saw in that awesome demo in the store. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's true. You know, Sam, we've talked about extensively, you know, thank you for explaining HLG and, and PQ, but um, and we've referenced one flavor mm-hmm. of PQ, Dolby Vision, but but I think it'd be helpful for you to explain mm-hmm. that there's actually three flavors of PQ. And, and in fact, maybe technically there's even there's even more. But, you know, I'm thinking uh, maybe you can mm-hmm. explain to the audience HDR10, HDR10 Plus. And, and then, you know, we've kind of talked about Dolby mm-hmm. Vision already, but also Dolby Vision and how those flavors, um, you know, relate to each other. Yeah, that's great. So with HDR, the PQ curve has different ways of, we can transmit the same data on the PQ curve in different ways. The easiest way to understand is HDR10. And what we're going to do is we're just going to take that vanilla PQ transfer function. We're going to cap it at a thousand nits. We're going to add specific metadata and we're going to use a rec 2020 color primary. And we're going to standardize that for television broadcast. So that's the baseline HDR support is HDR10. Okay, and that's going to go out to every television. And if I have a 400 nits TV, it's going to take that HDR10 and any data above 400 nits is just going to clip it, right? If I have a 600 nits, it's going to do the same thing. Got any it. data right above 600 nits is going to clip it and then present it like that, that direct mapping right onto the television. Dolby, when they uh, created PQ, they knew that backwards compatibility was going to be an issue. And so with PQ, they created what they call the Dolby Vision Standard. And the Dolby Vision Standard adds dynamic metadata, which gives the content creator a shot-by-shot control over how that image, that HDR image is adapted into SDR. So when I'm a creator, I do my HDR pass, and then I turn on Dolby Vision, and I set up a second display that's showing me the results in SDR with the Dolby Vision process. And then I go around and I fine tune that SDR image, every single shot or every single scene, I craft the perfect SDR. And then I send all of that information to the encoder. So what my HDR image is, and then the tweaks that I said to add to make it an SDR image, okay? And the Dolby Vision encoder sits there and goes, okay, so here's the SDR, here's the HDR. My television, the one that I'm decoding this for, okay, I'm going to decode that information and create a map. So I'm gonna take the content creator's decisions on how to squish that down, and I'm gonna apply them to the dynamic range of this television. So it's a way of optimizing the 
HDR image for every single television to the characteristics of how that television can reproduce an image. So it might roll off the highlights for a 400 nits television or a 600 nits television, or it might stretch them and clip in, right? It's the content creator who gets to decide how they create that mapping. And so when you have a Dolby Vision file for HDR, it's going to adapt itself to the television, okay? And allow you to create during the encode process, an SDR version that the content creators have signed off on. HDR10 does something very similar for a- to Dolby Vision for HDR. It doesn't give the creator the control over how to fine tune the process, but it goes through and analyzes a bunch of points within your image, or sorry, HDR10 plus. HDR10 goes, plus, right. Yes. Goes through and analyzes your images and then just creates data points for your frames. Okay. And those data points are sent to the television and the television makes the I decision see. on how to adapt the content. Okay. And that gives you a, a kind of a, an okay version. Like it, it's better than it would be without it but it doesn't give the content creator the control over how to fine tune it. And then you have other formats like SLHDR, where you're taking an uh, HDR content, translating it into an SDR bitstream with a little bit of overhead that can then get sent out and your tele- the televisions who can do HDR take the SDR image and turn it back into HDR, where the SDR televisions just use the, the SDR content, right? So for delivering content, that's one, another way of doing it. And they're all using the PQ transfer function at the Great. basis of it. So does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for explaining that, you know, breaking it down because, you know, this gets thrown around these different standards. And uh, I, I think it's it's hard to, you know, it, it is hard to understand how they relate or yeah. Yeah, then they, you get these Venn diagrams saying, uh, exactly. okay, which TV support which HDR the, formats and uh, how can I buy uh-huh. one that's right in the middle that has all of yeah, them and there isn't yeah. one that supports all of them? <laughs> no, and then you have to question whether it's going to be great quality. And a lot of it, you have to think about what area of the world that you live in and work in. For instance, uh-huh. if you're in Japan, NHK, the public broadcaster, HLG, co-conver- yeah, co-created yeah. HLG. HLG. Yeah. HLG. So they broadcast yeah. all of their content in HLG. Yeah. So you have to have HLG support there, right? And you're not going to yeah. find much broadcast Dolby Vision, but Dolby yeah. Vision is preferred by the studios. US, right? Yeah, and US right. market. By the uh, Hollywood studios. Mm-hmm. And, and I think now they're also going to support uh, live HDR broadcast in Dolby Vision, which wasn't possible. Yes. Dolby Vision uh, Live. Earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where they you can broadcast, um, you, there's a, an on-site, real-time Dolby Vision analysis that happens and translates that data into the into the bitstream that you can use for encoding or adapting to televisions. Well, this is uh, really really insightful, and you know, <laughs> drawer. I feel like we need to have Sam back to do a master class on color science. <laughs> there were there were definitely some moments in this in this yeah, discussion that's, that's where, the basis um, of, of yeah, I wasn't exactly following. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, well, I'm sorry for that. No, the thing is, you know, if, if you want to do a masterclass on color science, you can't do it in a podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's right. true. Well, it has that'll to be a little bit of visual. Yeah, a little bit yeah, of visual. Yeah, it has to be visual. Yeah, and I don't think you can do it over the web because everybody has a different display. <laughs> it has to be, you know, face-to-face and, 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 you know, high-quality monitor. And then you can really see the difference. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I was wondering if an average user 
can tell the difference, for example, between HDR10 plus signal and a Dolby Vision signal on his TV. Mm. I'm just wondering. Yeah, you know, that's a good good question, question. Sam. I mean, have you been exposed to any, you know, sort of consumer surveys or anything? And, you know, we're not putting you on the spot. I know that a lot of these, (laughs) you're actually (laughs) your clients. So, but. Yeah, yeah, it could be sensitive. We don't want to get you into trouble. Yeah, yeah. But but just as a general question, though, have have there been some sort of scientific studies, you know, in terms of what a consumer can see or not see? There has been a lot of things that I've seen where people have tried to quantify, figure that out or quantify it. It's a very, very hard thing to do in part because you need to start with a source that showcases what HDR can do without going overboard to the point where it will always look bad in the different formats. Right. And so there's... There are companies who have done some levels of surveys that I I kind of know what their results are. I don't know specifics, yeah. and I'm not allowed to share those. But there there is some level of preferences. What I can tell you is that there is a very strong creator preference for Dolby Vision. Interesting. Because it gives the creators the control over the medium. Yeah. Right. And so they're not at the mercy of some color scientist sitting in the room, in a room at some other point who's figured out how the perfect image is going to look. Right. They, content creators want to be able to, to control how a consumer is going to see their content. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's what they're, we're, our whole job is to craft experiences, right? Mm. To create content that connects with people emotionally and being able to control the image from end to end. That's what Dolby Vision gives us, right? And so working in HDR, Dolby Vision is the preferred format for content creators. Interesting. Well, mm-hmm. in, in in wrapping up this interview, and uh, we definitely will have you back, but in wrapping up this interview, what do you think someone who's doing encoding. So, you know, kind of switching Mm -hmm. back into the seat that most of our audience is sitting in, and that is um, they're, they're, you know, they're basically taking a file. They're not creating that file. They're, you know, they have nothing to do with how it was shot and how it was color graded and all that. Are there any um, insights or, or tips or tricks or anything that you think that would be helpful for them to understand as they're encoding HDR content that you would like to share? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. As I know you do have a lot of personal experience actually encoding for distribution, and so that's why I think it's a great question because you're you're kind of involved end to end, you know, a little bit glass to glass, <laughs> which is yeah, it's rare. Yeah, it is um, rare, exactly. Yeah. My biggest point would be first is recognizing that you get a better quality image at the same bit rate using HDR than if you're encoding that same image in SDR. This is a weird quirk that I found mm. is that I get more a higher bit efficiency with HDR. So I can actually tell my encoder to run a little bit hotter with HDR and still assume that I'm going to be under under certain peaks. Do you know why that is? Yeah, it's because generally, especially with PQ, you're not using the entire range of the bits available. So if you have a thousand nits peak, you're capping off at code 768. Right. And so everything above that, right, is just wasted bits. And so it's like you've just saved a whole bunch of data just right off the top. 
right? And mm-hmm. then the relationships right. and the way that the DCT uh, quantization mm-hmm. works that's used in a lot of these these scenarios ends up a lot more efficient when you have a a slightly bigger range between things. And that's one of the things that HDR does for the darks is it gives you a more bits towards the darks and so you can get a better a better range while preserving perceptual detail at a slightly lower bit rate which is which is pretty cool so that's my first thing and then the second thing is if you are doing uh some form of live stream or sliced bread technique where you're you're creating you know multiple streams that a, a viewer is going to going to latch onto consider dropping the spatial resolution before dropping your bit rate. Or if you have to drop your bit rate, drop your spatial resolution. Because HD in HDR with a proper bit rate is going to look better than 4K at the same bit rate in SDR. Right? Because you're going to get more palletization, you're going to get more block artifacting, you're going to get more problems with the image. But in 1080, that jump from 4K to 1080 in HDR is a lot harder for our brains to notice Mm -hmm. because the contrast is preserved. Mm Right, mm-hmm. and the we're more attuned to the brightness ranges and and in the HDR image, and so a palletization in HDR looks really really gross. Right, the block artifacting can be very distracting, mm-hmm. and so if you mm-hmm. drop down the spatial resolution, right, and so you're blurring things just a little bit more, you actually end up with a much much better image that's preferred in your by your viewers. Whereas that might not always be the case for SDR. So that's another yeah. thing that I've noticed. Wow, that's a really great tip for our uh, listeners. When you're encoding HDR content and uh, you need to drop your bitrate, you need to create a lower bitrate version, don't hang on to your 4K too long, go down to 1080, mm-hmm. and then when it scales up, it's going to look better than 4K at that bitrate. That, that's an yep. excellent tip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's gold. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Sam. And Dror, that's interesting because that's really consistent with the work that you've been doing recently. I know looking at ABR ladders and and bit rates, and I, I think that that tip is very consistent with what we're we right, found. Right, right, right. yeah, been, yeah, yeah. We've been looking at uh, lately at creating optimal ABR layers, yeah. and uh, definitely those uh, fixed relationships between resolution bit rate. So some of them need need to break, they, and they especially when you're yep. yeah. doing content adaptive, you see that uh, each uh, piece of content uh, reacts differently to scaling it down mm-hmm. versus uh, reducing its bitrate. So it's it's very interesting to find those uh, points. But that's some uh, you know future work. We're not right. going to get uh, too much uh, into this. Just kind of a teaser. So at this point, I think uh, we'd like uh, to thank you, Sam. Thank you. Yeah, Very much. For having yeah, me. Thank you, Sam. It was really a wonderful discussion. And uh, we will figure out how to do a color science uh, masterclass. I, I think that would be, it'd be fun, you know. And, uh, and Or or you can just point people my way and I can I can do it for there them. There you person. go. There you go. Happy to do that. And, a, Sam is your and, man. and we Great will share, you know, colors. yeah, we'll share your LinkedIn profile and contact information in the show notes. So, uh, yeah. Thanks for coming Marvelous. on thank you so the much. Video Insiders. All right. Thank you. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders Podcast, a production of Beamer Limited. To begin using Beamer's Codex today, go to beamer.com forward slash free to receive up to 100 hours of no-cost HEVC and H264 transcoding every month.